So thank God we have finished the Ten Commandments, yes? Now we can move on to something more relevant, more contemporary, more positive. Now we can talk about Jesus. How about Jesus on the Ten Commandments? Shall we do that? Because with Jesus, we don't get that shaking ground and that thundering sky. With Jesus, we don't have to be worried that something's going to erupt or that the ground will open and swallow us. With Jesus, he, he would never unleash a den of serpents on a commandment breaker, would he? So let's just do Jesus on the Ten Commandments because Jesus, we like. Jesus cares about us. Jesus is a nice guy. If we didn't have Jesus, thank God for Jesus, or what would we have? Well, God. It's interesting because the Ten Commandments sort of leave us feeling like that. So we will do two weeks on Jesus and the Ten Commandments. Mark chapter 12 is where we'll spend most of our time for these two weeks. Jesus is asked a question about the Ten Commandments, and it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark chapter 12, that's where we'll be for the next two weeks. Jesus is asked about these commandments, this famous question, which is the most important? So we have the perfect account in the Gospel of Mark of a story waiting to unfold because everybody who needs to be there for a good debate is present. In this circle with Jesus are Sadducees, Pharisees, Herodians, the crowds, which the crowds are always everywhere in Mark, and Jesus. The questions so far have been hostile. So it's interesting that someone steps forward now to ask Jesus a question, and this scribe appears to be genuine, appears to be genuinely curious, and has come from the outskirts, has been listening to the hostile questioning. The scribe steps forward, Mark 12, beginning in verse 28, and says, One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the second. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied, which I always kind of chuckle there. Wouldn't you like to be the guy who says, good job, Jesus? Way to go, Jesus. Good answer. Give him an A. Well said, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him, verse 33, to love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, which is interesting. You can only offer burnt offerings and sacrifices in Jerusalem, which would imply you could only be a good commandment keeper if you live near the temple. So what Jesus has said is significant. It's more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. Verse 34, when Jesus saw he had, he had answered wisely, the scribe, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. And that's true in the Gospel of Mark. This is the last questioning of Jesus. And he, Jesus moves from here to conversation with his disciples, to the Last Supper, and you know how the story goes. It is interesting, in a community so familiar with the laws of Moses, in a commun community so well familiar with these 613 additional 
community laws. In a community that knows all of those 613 laws can be interpreted different ways depending upon where you live geographically, depending upon your, your amount of devotion, your degree of devotion. So we would say a Southern Californian Adventist, and we know what that means, right? You could use that kind of language here with the Jews. You could tell how pious, how devoted, how careful they were by the region, the geography they came from. In a community that's been so careful about this, it's so careful about all of their laws, there's already a story circulating, a story circulating of a young man who runs up to the rabbi and says, Rabbi, teach me everything you know about the law while I'm standing on one foot. It's a challenge. In a community where this verbal challenge is, it can be war and, and it can be aggressive and, and it's less about seeking information and it's more about who has the right answer and therefore who has the superior position in that kind of a community. What is this question in Mark chapter 12? Which is the greatest commandment, Jesus? Which is the most important? Probably not coming from from someone trying to trap Jesus, probably a sincere question. Which is the greatest? Could the community really be asking for Jesus' help in terms of prioritizing their energy? If I don't have time to do 613, can you just cut to the chase? What's the weightier commandment? They need a shortcut? Are they really asking Jesus that? I'm not sure that they are. Did you catch on the news this week this boy Ethan in Minnesota selling his lemonade at his lemonade stand in, in Minnesota in his grandmother's front yard? This is his third summer selling lemonade. He looks like any other kid, any other 11-year-old, except for that he wears a suit and a tie when he sells his lemonade. He used to sell in a t-shirt, but he realized if he put a suit and a tie on, instead of making $5 a day, he makes $40 or $50 a day. So they say this kid has cleared almost $1,500 selling lemonade. In a little video interview you can see online, the reporter asks him about his outfit, and he said, well, hey, the first day people drove by and said, well, look at how cute you are in a suit. So I figured if cute gets me more money, he bought 12 suits. It's an 11-year-old boy who owns 12 suits, and he spends his summer selling lemonade. Now. Listen to some commentary on this story. One of the blog sites picked up the story of Ethan Esparza selling lemonade in Minnesota, and one wise critic has written this. Concerning this report on Ethan, he says, the article fails to address some important questions. Does this child have a vendor's license? Has he declared his income as required by state law? Does his business meet all the OSHA and EPA standards? Do the words tax evasion mean anything to him? Does the Minnesota Department of Revenue know about this child? We must protect the citizens of Minnesota. I'm not sure that was all tongue-in-cheek because already this summer you can read more than one report of children with competing lemonade stands and they report each other to the city council and get, get one another shut down if you don't have a vendor's license, so they can increase their own business on their block. Did you know this was a big business, lemonade? So I read the reports of this concerned citizen. I read his critique. You know, he would have fit in good with the religious elites during the days of Jesus. 
asking these questions, this citizen would have fit in perfectly. And that is how the New Testament environment ended up in the dilemma it did with the law. Because there is a consequence when we get into a push and shove where the law is concerned, where we seek a superior interpretation. There's a price to pay. There's a consequence to all that. I believe the consequence is a distortion of life and a distortion of the law, which ultimately means a distortion of God. When we get into this kind of push and shove, doesn't our Bible tell us the law is supposed to be good and holy and lovely and make us happy? The law brings delight then how did they get into such a situation in the New Testament? Afraid of God. Afraid of the law. A distortion of the law. They want, rather, to hide their heads also. One thousand years later, they'd rather hide their heads and, and have Jesus or someone represent them, but they really don't want God to come down. They really are afraid of something quaking in the sky, thundering. 613 laws later, can you even find Yahweh God from Israel? In the New Testament, has God been so distorted? Mark chapter 12, that question of all commandments, which is the most important? They asked Jesus. Jesus speaks words that are so familiar to his audience. I'm curious if it's a tactic or a technique. He takes the words from Deuteronomy 6. We spoke here last week. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love that God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Jesus adds that, by the way. That's not in Deuteronomy. With all your strength. Love that God. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. I always enjoy Jesus when he's given boundaries by people. I love over and over again to watch Jesus operate outside of those boundaries. Jesus, tell us which commandment is the greatest. And Jesus comes up with two. Two intertwined. Two really can't be separated, as we'll see over the next two weeks. To love God is to love people. To love people is to love God. Can't really accomplish one without the other. And when this story is told in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, it's interesting. Matthew adds that line, on these two commandments hang what? all the law and the prophets. So you take your Old Testament and you squeeze about half of that together. And about half of that is summarized in these two commandments, love God and love each other. That's a summary. And many people say the rest of the Bible is just commentary on those two commandments. We can confirm with these words of Jesus probably a couple of misunderstandings that we've had about the law, the law of Moses, maybe the law in the New Testament, and maybe God. One notion we have is that the law in the Old Testament is, only, is really for those Old Testament folk who are kind of crude and uneducated and really barbaric and they're nomadic tribal folk and they needed those laws and we are so much more educated. We're so much more evolved, so much more mature. We know so much more after the cross. We have Jesus. And Jesus helps us quickly understand, no, no, wait, the law wasn't just for them. Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've come to not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, which means to infuse them with more meaning and new meaning and a richer understanding and to help you understand today what it means for you. That's what it is to fulfill. I came to fulfill the law. 
I tell you the truth, not until, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest little yet letter in Hebrew, that's the yod, not the least stroke of a pen, which would be if you take a pen and, and just put a little, little line on the end of a letter, like a little serif on your computer, the, the serif fonts you would select. Not, not the smallest letter, not the littlest stroke of a pen passes away until everything is accomplished, Jesus said, which seems to be like he's saying even the most trivial aspects of the law you're going to have to observe. Don't think that's what he's saying. Just hold on to that concern. What Jesus is saying is that there is a permanence and a continuity about the Ten Commandments in particular, not maybe the 613 community ways of living together, because those community rules are always bound to time and place and people and specific things. That's why we don't know what to do with don't boil the goat in its mother's milk today. Because we don't boil milk and we don't have goats running around our property, most of us. Those 613 rules are always bound to time and place and people. But Jesus finds that these Ten Commandments have a thread of continuity. They belong. They belong. But... There is an interesting tension even when Jesus teaches about the Ten Commandments and he says not one stroke will pass away. Just a few verses later he goes on to sort of reinterpret those Ten Commandments. You've heard it said, but I say to you, while we don't have time this morning to sort of go into the tension in our Bible about the law and the Ten Commandments, we have to acknowledge that it exists there. While Jesus did not abolish the law, while he comes to infuse it with new meaning, there is interesting tension in the remarks of Jesus about the law. We somehow, though, move on in our New Testament, and, and we conclude rather quickly from re reading Romans and a passage in Colossians and some things in James and other places in our Scripture that we're not under the law, we're under grace. Do we all believe that? We're under grace. We believe that as Christians. And then we say, not only are we under grace, but though that law was nailed to the cross, we take the passage in Colossians and we say, therefore, we really don't have to worry about the conditions of this, these commandments anymore. Not only just the ten, but any specifics that we've all worked out, we don't have to worry about any of them. They've all been nailed to the cross with Jesus. We're under grace. We don't need to worry about this. And I just want to say that that interpretation is not only a misunderstanding of Romans and Colossians, it's also inconsistent with the words of Jesus. I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it, the first thing Jesus said there. But the second is that that's not the function of the law. The, and though that is what these passages are talking about. When we're under grace and not under law, that is to say the law is never our Savior. We know this, don't we? Have we struggled enough with that over the years? The law is never our Savior. Jesus is our Savior. Of course we're under grace. Of course that comes first. And when that's in place, then something next happens when we respond to that, and that's where the law comes in. This is what Jesus came to fulfill and help us understand. Nowhere does Jesus say we've outgrown the law. Things are a little more relaxed now. Just unbutton your collar, sit back, have some lemonade for $5 a cup. It's okay, I've taken care of it all. That's a gross distortion of reading our New Testament. Jesus then takes that distortion, I think, and others that the Jewish folk have brought to him, and he begins to reorient his listeners. He begins to work with them about rethinking the law and rethinking what they've inherited. And if there is a distortion, what would we do with it? And remember, we've said all throughout the Ten Commandments sermon series, people don't like to be told what to do. 
And you all agree with me when I say that. You nod your head. Nobody likes it. Humans have never gotten comfortable with law and rules. You follow human civilization from beginning to present time. We don't like it. We push against it. When Jesus leaves the earth, the first church council in Jerusalem, what are they arguing over? Interpretation of the law. Which laws apply to which people? When I was in graduate school, last year university, about four or five years ago, I, I started getting notices in the mail that I was violating a law on the university campus. I was missing chapel. Now, some of you who are uh, current with your college experience, or it's not been that long ago, you know that that's a really big deal. You got to go to chapel every week. You have to go to worship. Nobody likes to be told you have to go to worship. You have to stop what you're doing one day every week and put your things aside and for one hour go sit in a church and someone will spiritually feed you and somehow that makes your life better. And I just re rebelled to that. I I'm an adult. I don't have to go to worship. You can tell a 20-year-old to do that, but don't, don't tell me I have to go to worship. So the yellow cards came in the mail. Every other week or so I would get another yellow card that said, you've now missed four chapels, five chapels, nine chapels. And then they up the ante. If you don't show up, we're going to put you on probation. You're not going to put me on probation. I pay tuition. I'm an adult, I'm thinking. Finally, they did put a hold on my records. They didn't let me register for a class, of all things. I not only have been on campus several years, I work at the institution there, and then now they put me on hold. So I have to go get my hold released before I can register for class next quarter. I called the office spiritual life office and said, excuse me, but I don't need to go to chapel. <laughs> yes, you do. No, I don't. You don't understand. I'm 35 years old. I have children. I read the Bible to my children every night. I don't need to go to chapel. Would you get this thing cleared up for me? The very polite 20-year-old college student said to me, excuse me, but even if you were 90 years old, you have to go to chapel. She wasn't teasing. I don't like rules. You don't like rules. We've been telling ourselves this every week, which is the, our human nature to fight against. Human beings have never gotten comfortable with law. So I believe here comes Jesus in the Gospels and begins to reorient and redefine and infuse with new meaning what it means to have law in your life. Because we've always wrestled with this. There's a distortion, I think, the very character of God when we wrestle against law, when we don't understand what law means. So Jesus begins doing some repairing. Which is the greatest commandment? Isn't it interesting? Jesus didn't answer with a rule. Which is the greatest commandment, teacher? Do you notice Jesus didn't say, thou shalt not? What did he say instead? Hear, O Israel. Which could be nicely translated, listen, even nicer translation, keep on listening, people of God. Isn't that an interesting first rule? Keep on listening, people of God. Something is happening here. Don't turn your face away from law and this notion of God. Keep on listening, people of God. The Lord our God is one God. 
A wonderfully rich meaning of that word one. It's not just the number one. It's just not the one God above all, though it does mean that. It means also our God is the certain one. Our God is the known one. Our God is the trustworthy one. Our God is the one with the track record. Isn't that beautiful? Our God is that God. Our God is one God, the certain God. Keep on listening, Israel. Our God is that one God you know. That's a time out from Jesus. In, in case you've got it in a distorted view of God and the law, keep on listening, our, oh Israel, that one God is our God that we know about. We've known this God for a long time. That's grace, by the way. Keep on listening. Keep your eyes on this one God, Jesus says. This God you can count on. Now that you know him, now that you can count on him, now that you remember which God we're talking about, now that you have your face turned towards that God, love that God with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your heart, with all your strength. Jesus adds mind to that list, which is an interesting addition I might come back to later, depending. I told you we'd get out early, so we'll see. Now that you know which God I'm talking about, love that God, which is a wonderfully poetic way of saying, with everything, nothing's excluded in this list. This is the God you will love with every aspect of who you are, with every aspect of your life. Nothing will be left out. And when you love this God, in the time of Jesus, love doesn't mean what, how we use it today. In fact, I'm not even sure I know how we mean love today. We use it in so many various ways, that word love. But for Palestinian folks, first century, if you're going to love, you're going to attach yourself to that person or that group. You're going to visualize yourself as being connected. Love this God. That means attach yourself to this God. See yourself as stuck together. Understand you're one with this God. You belong here. Visualize yourself connected. That's what it means, love God. Visualize yourself connected to this God with everything that you have. Now, doesn't that sound a little different than the commandments we're used to hearing that are so abrasive? 613 of them. Jesus reorients them. This is a God you can invest in. You can love this God. Imagine yourself connected because, remember, it's that one God that's reliable that we know about. It is safe to be connected to this God. Jesus reminds the people. I read with interest a story about the Lakers Danilo Pinnock, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, I don't know what it feels like to be picked in the second round of the NBA draft, 53rd, to be one of the last chosen. That's this guy, 25-year-old coming from George Washington, skipped his last year playing there, and he's coming to the Lakers, apparently he's practicing with them now. You know what it means to be picked that late in the, dra in the draft process? It means you're really not sure of anything. It means that you get your $100 per diem per day and you work your tail off in practice session and you hope one of the coaches is watching and that they'll actually sign you to a real contract. But right now when he wears that Laker jersey, he's just pretending. He's hoping that he'll be on the team this fall. So instead of Kobe and all the rest who go out and eat steak for dinner, this guy gets his $100 a day. The newspaper said he sits in his hotel room, a cheap hotel room in El Segundo, on a hundred bucks a day eating a banquet TV dinner and he drinks Gatorade which he's lifted from the Laker lockers room because it's free 
And he sits there anticipating what it might be like to be a Laker. When he was asked to sign an autograph last week, he signed number two instead of number 25. He doesn't know who he is yet. They say to give him a way out, he was number two on his previous team. So he might have just been signing his old number. But he's not really a Laker yet. He doesn't know if he's on the team because he's number 65 in the second round. And what in the world does that mean for his future? He has no clue unless he just pizzazzes the socks off of these judges. And he gets to sign a real contract. So he holds out. You see, you can't really imagine yourself on the team yet, can you? You can't really envision. You can't call around and tell everybody, I'm wearing purple and gold this fall. Because he doesn't know. The teaching of Jesus in chapter Mark says to us this morning, you know what team you're on. You can be attached to this God. There is no holding out. No one's waiting to see my track record or your track record. No one's waiting to see about the commandments I keep or don't keep. Mark, Jesus' Mark says, remember this one God. Listen, O Israel, this is your God already. You're already on this team. This God has already chosen you. There is no reason for you to hold out. You can envision yourself attached. Is that good news? No one's waiting to see if we make it over the summer. It'll let us on the team this fall. Jesus completely reorients their idea of law. And then he says, now you are closer to the kingdom with this understanding. Closer to the kingdom. And the text says that this was the last question. No one said anything else. If Jesus told you you were closer to the kingdom... Do you think that might incite some reaction? <laughs> closer to the kingdom, would you say, how do I get in the kingdom? If I'm closer here, how do I get even closer and even closer? What would it take to be all the way in the kingdom, Jesus? No, no one asked that question that day in the middle of Jerusalem. And what's so amazing about this Jesus story is that he's just given them information that could change the outcome of the Jesus story. Love this God and love one another and you're closer to the kingdom. And everybody says, hmm, and walks away. And then the story unfolds in the fashion that we know. Jesus, who loves well, walks to a cross and dies. If God tells you this week you're just a little closer to the kingdom when you see yourself this way and when you move around in the world this way, will it make a difference in what you do this week? Would it change decisions? Would it change outcomes for you personally? You're just a little closer to the kingdom. That's good news. The kingdom of God, that's where everything is healthy and whole, where there's peace, where things are as God planned. That's the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about. You're just a little closer when you understand these two commandments, Jesus is saying. We had in first service this morning the newest member of our congregation. Craig and Debbie Kerrigan got a phone call yesterday. Craig and Debbie are usually come to first service. Craig often sits up in the techie area and does projection for us. He called yesterday afternoon at 2 o'clock and said, would it be okay if I just didn't do that, my responsibility at church tomorrow, because I, I have a new daughter. He sounded surprised. I said, Debbie's not been pregnant. And he said, no. 
but we have a new daughter. Brittany's already 15, the first daughter, and I said, what, what's happening? Phone rang on Tuesday, phone rang on Wednesday, phone rang on Thursday. By Friday, they have a daughter. Her name's Isabel Marie. You may be seeing pictures up here already. She'll be one very shortly. It's been over two years that Debbie and Craig have been hoping to adopt. And more than once, more than twice, I believe, they thought they had a baby coming, and it didn't work out. So when the phone rang on Tuesday, and because Craig works for the county, San Bernardino County is a school teacher, and, and they're processing through the county, he, he wasn't quite sure what to think. Is Shall we get excited? Tuesday. Another phone call Wednesday. Another phone call Thursday. Here's Isabel. We met her this morning in first service. She's come to church already. You should like to know that she spent most of her church service out in the lobby, however. <laughs> She'll be a good Adventist Christian, won't she? Without saying too much about this little one, let me tell you something. Where she's come to in the Kerrigan household is closer to the kingdom. Where she's come from where she's been, she probably was never going to hear the name of God. She probably would not have had a whole and happy and healthy life. Her physical needs would not have been taken care of. This child is closer to the kingdom today. That's the kingdom of God. Whole, healthy, happy, productive, able to respond to God in this world. That's the kingdom. She's closer to it today because the Kerrigan family is also open to God and listening to this one reliable God they can depend upon. For two years, they've been waiting for this baby. For two years, they didn't know when this was going to happen. But because they've had their hearts open and because they've wanted to share their dependable God in this world... They are also closer to the kingdom this morning. Do you understand? Closer to the kingdom. When you depend upon this reliable God, closer to the kingdom then, when you decide, I can put everything on this God. I'm, I'm with this God. I'm stuck together. I visualize myself connected throughout my day, everywhere I go, in every aspect of my day. Mm, that's the first of these two great commandments. Doesn't really sound like law at all, does it? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love this God and love your neighbor. On all of this, the law and the prophets 